Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups, which releases every single Tuesday, and From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. I do all these podcasts full-time, the writing, the research, everything, and every dollar you give helps keep it all going, and I truly appreciate it, and I'll thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at bairdo37. You can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash c slash Canadian History X. And remember, that's E-H-X. Or you can visit my website where you'll find 700 articles about various aspects of Canadian history. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. The land that would be Vailmount has been the traditional territory of the Indigenous, including the Kootenay, the Shuswap, and the Rocky Mountain Cree. They inhabited this area for thousands of years, forming complex societies that depended on each other for trade, with goods coming from the coast of British Columbia and the interior of the future Canadian prairies. Other indigenous that had ties to the area included the Claytli Tenay and the Mountain Métis. While fur traders were often moving through the area to trade with the indigenous, settlement in the Vailmount area slowly came about over the course of the late 19th century and early 20th century. This would result in a major change of life for the indigenous of the area, the Simpa people, for example, would be expelled from the Tetewan Cache in 1906. Today, there is an exhibit that showcases this at the Valmount Museum, which I'll talk about later. The defining part of the landscape in this area, which has been looked upon with reverence by the indigenous, all the way up to today with travelers and residents of the area, is Mount Robson, the highest point in the Canadian Rockies, situated in Mount Robson Provincial Park. The mountain was named for Colin Robson, who worked for the Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company, rather than for John Robson, who was a premier of British Columbia. The indigenous people had a different name for it, Yuhai Haskun, which means the mountain of the spiral road. In 1893, the mountain was first surveyed by James McEvoy, and it was documented as the highest point in the Canadian Rockies. Conrad Kane would be the first person to climb the mountain, which he did in 1913. So, no visit to Vale Mount is complete without seeing this immense, beautiful mountain. In 1906, a man named Fulton Alexander McCurdy would stake the first homestead in the area. And about two kilometers away from future Vailmount, a town called Swift Creek was established and a railway station was built there in 1914 as the railway finally came through the Yellowhead Pass, which was the original route of the Canadian Pacific Railway when it was built across Canada in the late 1880s, before it changed to the Kicking Horse Pass. Swift Creek owed its start thanks to the railway workers who liked the area and decided to stay. Soon, stores would start up and logging became the main industry of the area. There was also a school, hotel, and post office. At the same time the railroad was built through, a young man named Kushner, who worked for the Canadian National Railway, noticed there was a valley between the mountains of the area. He would call the area Valley in the Mountains as a result. In 1927, though, the decision was made to move Swift Creek one mile down the tracks. With that move, the name Swift Creek was gone. There was a suggestion of calling the area Bergeron, but that was put to the side and instead Valley in the Mountains became Vale Mount and a new community was born. 
1918, the Eldolphus Warden Patrol Cabin was built to serve as the home for park rangers in Jasper National Park. Sitting in a beautiful meadow with a coniferous forest around it and Mount Robson looming over the landscape, the cabin stands to this day and is used by travelers who are hiking through along the North Boundary Trail. In 1998, the cabin was made a recognized Federal Heritage Building. On February 18, 1924, Myrtle Ishbel Hargreaves was born in Jasper, but she would spend her childhood living on the Mount Robson Ranch near Valmount, and she would eventually find herself becoming a legend in the area. By the time she was a teenager, she was known in the area for being a competent horsewoman, wrangler, packer, and camp cook. When the Second World War began, she started to work doing the work of men in the area while they were serving overseas. On June 5, 1946, she would marry Murray Cochran, and together they would work to take care of the land in the area. Together they would have six children. In 1959, the family moved back to the Robson Ranch to manage it for Alice Wright, and they would remain there for the next three decades. During those years, Ishbel would train generations of young people who came to work at the ranch. She would even give free English lessons to the new residents of the area. When she had downtime, she would knit and sew while also creating wedding, anniversary, and birthday cakes. In 1980, the couple were able to buy the ranch they had stayed at for so long. Ishbel quickly adapted to a changing world when the highway reigned supreme and train travel was something fading into the background, and she would also work with the other tourism providers to ensure that overflows from her own ranch would stay at their own accommodations. Wendy Dyson would say, quote, She was a great mentor. She taught us all that we need to work together to succeed. End quote. Ishbel would also take her love of local history and became a founding member of the Valmount Historical Society, always helping out in any way she could. Even as she reached her 70s, she would travel the world visiting Europe and New Zealand, taking a train trip across Canada, and a week-long cruise on the River Rhine. Ishbel would eventually pass away on October 24, 2014 at the age of 90. Now only two years after Valmount came into being, it would make nationwide news all thanks to the crash of a biplane. In July of 1929, Captain Ross Hoyt, a United States aviator, was flying home from Nome, Alaska to New York in his Curtis Hawk Army Pursuit airplane when he was suddenly forced to make an emergency landing just outside of Valmount. The cause of the issues was water getting into the gas line, causing the engine to cut out. It was far from an easy landing either with the plane crashing into a field. It would be a total wreck and beyond repair. Thankfully, Hoyt was making the flight across the continent while wearing a parachute, and as the plane began to descend, he bailed out and thanks to that parachute, was not injured. He had left Fairbanks on July 21st and flew to Whitehorse, and then started on his flight to Edmonton when the problem started. Hoyt was stuck in Valmont for several days, but he would eventually leave and head to Edmonton, where he was given a huge reception. His plane would be shipped there after his arrival. The Edmonton Journal would report, quote, He will stay at Valmont several days to load the plane onto a boxcar for shipment to New York. He will travel to New York himself via Edmonton and Minneapolis. He said after a good night's rest, he is feeling very fit. End quote. During the Second World War, a work camp was set up near to Valmount where Japanese Canadians were interred during the war. These Japanese Canadians were put to work building roads through the area, and they would eventually live in work camps like the Yellowhead Blue River Highway Road Camp near Valmount. For the men and their families who lived at these camps, they would do what they could to make the camps livable, including making flower and vegetable gardens, bathhouses, a tea house, bridges, and baseball diamonds. You can still visit the site of this work camp, which serves as a reminder for a dark time in Canadian history while honouring the men and women who lived there and helped to expand the road network of British Columbia from the Yellowhead Pass and beyond. 
On November 21, 1950, south of Valmount, a westbound troop train full of men going to fight in Korea collided with an eastbound Continental Limited train, resulting in the death of 21 people, including 17 soldiers and the crews of both trains. Not only was this a terrible accident, but it likely changed the course of Canadian history forever. At the time, this stretch of track was the only mountainous track on the CNR mainline that did not have automatic block signals. As the two trains approached, a forestry worker noticed the impending collision and began to frantically wave, only to receive a wave in return from the crew of the Continental. He then saw the two trains collide into each other at terrific speed. The locomotive of the troop train was lifted up and came down on the second car of the Continental train, crushing it. The troop train was carrying wooden passenger coaches, which were smashed to pieces by the heavy steel cars of the Continental. Some of the cars imploded, others were upended, and pitched off the track as scalding hot steam froze the flesh of the men in the minus 18 degrees Celsius temperatures. Along with the 21 dead, there were 60 injured, and the wreckage stacked 50 feet high in some places, and one survivor would state that it looked like, quote, a jumble of twisted steel and splintered wood, end quote. The troops who were not injured did what they could in the six-inch deep snow to help those who were injured. Four of the dead were never found, likely completely consumed by the fiery explosion that occurred the next day at the wreck site. The Canadian National Railway blamed Alfred John Atherton, the telegraph operator who failed to correctly relay the Kamloops dispatcher's order that the troop train pull onto a siding. Six months later, he was put on trial, and the person representing him was a young parliamentarian named John Diefenbaker, after his wife convinced him to do so. He agreed to do the case, and by showing evidence of errors in the transmission and his own high skill as a lawyer, Diefenbaker won a not-guilty victory for his client. The case received nationwide news and raised Diefenbaker's profile across the country. Seven years later, he was the leader of his party and the Prime Minister of Canada. Nearby to Valemount, you will find the Micah Mountain, and it is there that national news was made in October of 1955. It was in that month that William Rowe was working on the highway when he decided to climb up Micah Mountain to inspect the old mine. While he was walking, he saw what he thought was a grizzly bear 225 feet away. He had a rifle, but he chose not to shoot it as he didn't have a way of getting it down the mountain. Then the creature stepped into fuller view, and Rowe would say, quote, My first impression was a man six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing 300 pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair, end quote. The creature then moved within 20 feet of where Roe was hiding, and he would say, quote, It squatted down on its haunches, pulled the branches of the bushes, which were white and even. The head was higher at the back than the front, the nose broad and flat, the lips and chin protruding, its eyes were shaped like a bear's. Its neck was also inhuman, thick and shorter than any man's I've ever seen, end quote. Roe raised his rifle to shoot, but the creature ran away after catching his scent. In the end, Roe was happy he didn't shoot, saying, quote, Although I have called the creature it, I felt now it was a human, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I shot it. Whether this creature was a Sasquatch, I do not know. It will always remain a mystery to me until another one is found. End quote. If you like to see if you come across a Sasquatch, or you just want to enjoy a fantastic hike, you can hike the Micah Mountain near Valemount. This climb, which can be strenuous, climbs to the abandoned Micah workings at the 7,000 feet level of Micah Mountain. The route follows old logging trails and roads that were cleared of brush for hiking in 1992. It then follows a mule trail to the top of an early 1960s logging area, and typically the hike takes five to six hours. For decades, one of the biggest events in Valemount has been the Vale Mountain Days. Since 1982, the event has been a celebration of the mountain culture of the area. 
The event includes a parade, barbecue competition, athletic tournaments, and much more. It has become the event many have looked forward to throughout the year in Valemount, and it is a great thing to check out if you're thinking of visiting the area to see the local attractions. And while the event took a break due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it will return in June 2022. Another event to check out is the annual Valemount Canoe Mountain Rodeo. Held each July, it brings out some of the best rodeo competitors from across Western Canada and even the United States. Bull riding, barrel racing, and much more are all part of the rodeo that runs for two days at the Canoe River Campground Rodeo Grounds. If you'd like to learn more about Valemount and its history, you can visit the wonderful Valemount Museum and Archive. The museum is situated in the original train station of the community and features several exhibits from the history of the area. Exhibits include a look at the railroad towns of the area, the Japanese internment camps, Valemount pioneers, and local war heroes. A trapper's cabin has been recreated in the basement, and there's also the Ishbel Cochrane exhibit which features the Hargreaves Brothers Outfitting Company and the historic Robson Ranch where she grew up. On the upper level of the museum you will find a bedroom and schoolroom display, and on the museum grounds there's also a sea and caboose that serves as the annex. In the caboose there are logging and farming artifacts to explore. Another place to check out is Valmount Legion. On the upper floor of the Legion, there is the Valmount War Heroes Museum. This small museum features displays that highlight the many men and women who fought for Canada, some who returned home, and some, sadly, who did not. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Valmount, British Columbia. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.